Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. I've been away for a few weeks just enjoying the summer, but I'm going to release the rest of the Beatles episodes in the coming weeks, so we will definitely get to season two by the end of the summer. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast, and share us on social media with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get to it. Solo Beatles Part 3. In 1971, Paul sued John, Ringo, and George to officially dissolve the Beatles' legal partnership, to essentially erase the four Beatles' legal bindings through Apple. As a result, the Beatles spent much of their time from 1971 to 1974 in courtrooms, suing each other in business meetings, they were signing affidavits, writing written testimonies. As a result, the relationship between John, George, and Ringo uh, on one side, who were pretty firmly in the Alan Klein camp, uh, meaning they wanted Klein to keep managing them, not only their solo careers, but the company, Apple Corps, versus Paul, on the other hand, who didn't want anything to do with Alan Klein and wanted to be managed by his in-laws, Lee and John Eastman. This pretty fundamental division set off a firestorm between the ex-Beatles and led John to pen the vicious and blatant anti-McCartney song like How Do You Sleep? Uh, and unreservedly bashed his former collaborator in the press. Now, the rock press was obsessed with this conflict and would print pages and pages to any Beatle who wanted to air their grievances against another. Things got a lot worse after McCartney's lawsuit, and he repeatedly publicly stated that he just wanted the Beatles to get in a room and divide the Beatles' empire four ways. No Alan Klein, no Yoko, no Linda McCartney, just John, Paul, George, and Ringo signing a piece of paper. Now, McCartney said this probably kind of as a defense mechanism, because it it is a bit glib, it's unrealistic, it's a really oversimplified solution to a pretty complex legal and financial problem. And the other Beatles just couldn't stand McCartney's attitude about the whole situation. As a result, the rapport between Paul and his former bandmates was at an all-time low. By 1972, Paul and John decided that they needed to call a truce, especially with the public bashing. They agreed mainly at Paul's urging to no longer, no longer publicly criticize each other and even try to be friends again. John and Paul were like brothers. They knew each other probably better than anyone. So quickly, Lennon put down the knife and actually started treating Paul like a friend again, calling him on the phone, even sending him and Linda the Beatles' Decca tape as a Christmas gift in 1972. While things may have cooled down a bit between the Beatles by 1972, there was still a lot of Beatles business and a legal jungle surrounding the four Beatles, so they couldn't simply have a normal relationship. The other dark cloud over the early 70s was Alan Klein and his company, Abco, and their quest to fully manage Apple. The court had given a pretty damning account of Klein's management of the company so far, saying that not only did he take too much money, more money than he deserved, but also didn't solve the most fundamental accounting problems within Apple, like the fact that the Beatles' partnership meant that Paul stood to earn more from All Things Must Pass than George Harrison did. But despite that revelation and revelations like it, George, John, and Ringo decided to stick with Klein, probably as a pride thing, they didn't want to admit McCartney was right, so they would periodically re-sign Alan Klein every few months. 
However, as the 1970s progressed, each Beatle started to have personal problems with Klein. Klein felt that John's political activism was bad for business, for example, and John absolutely resented that. He wanted full, unquestioned support from his manager. And when Alan Klein was really hesitant to release Sometime in New York City, which we'll talk about later in the episode, John really felt betrayed. George was disappointed with the aftermath of the concert for Bangladesh and felt that not only did Klein make some huge mistakes, but he got the impression Klein was paying himself handsomely at a time when they weren't even sure if the money was going to get to the people of Bangladesh. Ringo simply felt neglected by Klein and felt that Alan Klein wasn't prioritizing his career. To top it all off, Apple was a financial mess with no end in sight. If Klein cleaned up a lot of Apple's excess when he arrived, he definitely made a lot of messes as the Beatles went solo. As a result, the three pro-Klein Beatles began to look for ways to sever their ties with Alan Klein, and finally did so in the spring of 1973. Why did the Beatles sever their ties with Klein? John explained in 1973, quote, There are many reasons why we finally gave him the push, although I don't want to go into the details of it. Let's say possibly Paul's suspicions were right. And the time was right. Although I haven't been particularly happy personally for quite a long time with the situation, I didn't want to make any quick moves. And I wanted to see if maybe something would work out, unquote. The reasons weren't just financial. I think George and Ringo in particular saw that in order to end the war uh, over the Beatles, the constant lawsuits, the business meetings that were just consuming their career, they had to concede to Paul and get rid of Alan Klein. Apparently, George, Ringo, and even Paul were open to a Beatles reunion during this period, possibly because of the money that was being offered at the time. And George even allegedly said in 1973, quote, The only way the Beatles can get together again is if Alan isn't there. I'm ready to do it, so is Ringo, and I think we can persuade John to go along with it. But if we're going to work with Paul, we need to get rid of Klein, unquote. Now, this potential Beatles reunion, this mythological, will-they-get-back-together uh, thing was present literally through the entire 1970s. And there were times when three out of the four Beatles wanted to do it. There were times when no Beatles wanted to do it. There were times when all four Beatles wanted to do it. But because of logistical reasons, they just didn't. The pop world was obsessed with it. They were constantly being asked by journalists if they were going to get back together. Every single interview they did, they were asked... Is there a chance that they're going to get back together? And they would always give the same vague answer. Every tour, every album, every single that they released was met with this sort of attitude of, yeah, it's nice, it's great, but what would really be great is if the Beatles would get back together. This dynamic is really important to understanding the post-Beatles world. Now, John was not ready to get back together. Uh, he couldn't be persuaded in 1973, and he said, quote, the chances are practically nil. And imagine if they did get together, what kind of scrutiny would they be under? Nothing could fit the dream people had of them. So forget it. You know, it's ludicrous, unquote. With Klein out of the picture, though, the post-Beatles landscape became quite different and a lot more cooled down. However, all of the Beatles would continue with their solo careers. And I think they all thought through the 1970s, I think they probably even thought it was likely that they would get back together at some point. After Imagine was released, John and Yoko left their mansion at Tittenhurst Park outside of London for New York City, and John quickly became obsessed with downtown life and the idea of being a New Yorker. 
John said of New York, quote, If I'd lived in ancient times, I'd have lived in Rome. Today, America is the Roman Empire, and New York is Rome itself, unquote. John loved that New York was a cultural capital with a robust community of musicians, artists, and activists, and that at any time, day or night, he could get food, grab a drink, or hang out in a record store. He also liked that he could blend in, and people, for the most part, didn't bother him. In London, John couldn't just hang out downtown. He couldn't just walk down the street. He would be mobbed. For some reason, New Yorkers gave John and Yoko their space. They could walk around, take the subway, and eat in restaurants, all without causing a big scene. Yoko actually spent much of her youth in New York and knew the city like the back of her hand. John said, quote, It was Yoko who sold me in New York. She'd been poor here and she knew every inch. She made me walk around the streets, parks, and squares and examine every nook and cranny. In fact, you could say I fell in love with New York on a street corner, unquote. New York also gave John a certain connection with the activist causes in America. For some time now, John and Yoko had been making the transition from avant-garde, edgy artists to more politically-minded activists, taking up causes like civil rights, anti-racism, they critiqued capitalism. Actually, capitalism was kind of an area where John was insecure. He felt like he was insufficiently communist or, or leftist. He grew up in a cushy bourgeois Uh, side of Liverpool. And, you know, famously, he became one of the richest people in the world. Around this time, almost all of John's work was overtly political. He released Power to the People, which he considered to be a Maoist anthem as a single. In 1970, John and Yoko ran a billboard campaign in New York City and a bunch of other cities uh, just advertising peace. And they put up huge billboards in places like Times Square that simply read, War is over if you want it. Happy Christmas from John and Yoko. This was John's way of advertising not a business or an album, but peace. It was an extension of his bed-ins with Yoko, where their idea was to sell peace, to promote it, like war or other consumer goods are promoted. The next year, Christmas time, 1971, John and Yoko decided to write a song around the Billboard campaign to follow up the Imagine single. Happy Christmas, War is Over featured both John and Yoko on lead vocals and a children's choir, And while it wasn't a huge hit at the time, kind of recorded too late to be big in the Christmas market, it's undoubtedly one of the most successful Christmas songs of all time. In 1972, John released another work of political commentary, his most underappreciated album, Sometime in New York City. This is among John's most controversial works for a few reasons. First, after the roaring success of Imagine, John's work was highly anticipated. People couldn't wait to see what he was going to release. And he sort of shocked everyone by putting out a record that had little or no commercial value or pop value. He gave a lot of time to Yoko's compositions, where she was the lead singer. Songs like Sisters, O Sisters and Born in a Prison feature Yoko alone on lead vocal. And most of the other songs feature Yoko pretty heavily as well. John also wrote some of his most explicitly political songs during this period. Uh, On the album, he included a song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and The Luck of the Irish. Uh, John does not mince his words uh, when he's criticizing the UK government and their actions against the people in Northern Ireland during the troubles in these songs. Uh, The lead single on the album was the most controversial by far. Uh, It was a song criticizing the treatment of women in society called Woman is the N-Word of the World. John explicitly used the N-Word in the song, and it was banned from the airwaves in the United States, but not the UK. 
The use of the N-word in a rock song sung by a white guy was pretty offensive to a lot of people, obviously. But John was actually publicly praised and awarded for the song by the National Organization for Women, who said Lennon was promoting a strong feminist message. Now, the song got a lot of people talking, that's for sure, but it was far from a hit. It was actually the worst performing single of Lennon's career, barely cracking the top 100. Sometime in New York City as an album performed terribly, and it's oftentimes overlooked or even forgotten when talking about John Lennon's work. That's because musically, it does seem scattered and disorganized. It's it's political, almost too preachy, and it's like overly and unnecessarily provocative. It feels this way because it's a mix of John and Yoko songs, and the album is half studio and half live album with long live jams from John's UNICEF concerts in 1969. Remember where he played with George Harrison, Keith Moon, Clapton, and a bunch of other people. The jams are good, they're fun, but they're a little aimless, and at times Yoko's shrieking is sometimes hard to, to get into, but there are definitely some rocking moments on the album. John's activism did go too far for fans, as Sometime in New York City was outsold by Ringo's Sentimental Journey and Boku of Blues, Paul's Wildlife, which were all sort of critical disasters. People just didn't care for John's sometimes condescending activism. They were growing tired of it, of the, the crazy campaigns and, and the angry uh, songs. I mean, they didn't like Yoko's avant-garde shrieking either, which John decided to put at center stage. In the summer of 1972, John played a couple of concerts backed by the band Elephant's Memory at Madison Square Garden to promote his album. The tickets didn't sell the way that they should have for an ex-Beatle concert, and for a while it was looking like John wasn't going to sell out his concert, like George had the year before. John even allegedly called Paul to join him on stage to boost sales, but Paul declined. Eventually, Alan Klein had to give away huge numbers of tickets just to fill the venue. John's concert was a success, though. He sang songs like Cold Turkey, Imagine, and Mother with such raw passion, sometimes screaming the lyrics. He even indulged the crowd, who went crazy when he said he was going to, quote, go back just once, unquote, and play Come Together by the Beatles. The concert was a success and definitely the peak of a pretty underwhelming 1972 for John Lennon. John's political activism didn't just give him and Yoko some controversial headlines in the press, though. It caught the attention of the United States government. Richard Nixon, who'd been elected in 1968, was heading towards an election year when John Lennon was at his most outspoken and his most political. The 72 election was the first presidential election where 18-year-olds could vote, and a very paranoid Nixon saw people like John Lennon as instigators of social upheaval and radical leftism. That could cost him some votes at the ballot box. Not only this, but conservative senators like Strom Thurmond always hated everything that the Beatles stood for. They hated the screaming, they hated the the progressive, the change. They just hated the Beatles. They hated anything that was slightly weird, and the Beatles were weird. So he pressured the FBI and the CIA to begin spying on John Lennon. In the years that followed, John's phone was often tapped. He and Yoko would often be followed when they were walking the streets of New York City. And the FBI was just constantly looking for a reason to kick John out of the country. Obviously, John wasn't some international communist ringleader capable of sowing some kind of political revolution in the United States. It, it seems absurd now, of course, but at the time, this kind of paranoia about young people and communists and leftists was pretty novel. And, and given the massive societal changes that had occurred in, in the decade before, 
it's not totally unreasonable that people were fearful of people like John Lennon and that politicians were ready to seize on it. The U.S. government's meddling, though, came to a head when, in 1972, John and Yoko's visas expired, and then their visas were suddenly recalled while they were waiting for their extension, essentially kicking them out of the United States. Now, the reason cited was not John's 1968 drug bust, but this was quite obviously the work of someone higher up. John would spend the next years of his life with lawyers and in court, consumed by his fight to stay in the United States permanently. Unfortunately, as a result of this, John literally couldn't leave the United States, or else he would risk simply not being let back into the country if he tried to return. As much as John loved to pretend that he was a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker, he really did miss England and his Aunt Mimi. He called his Aunt Mimi weekly, wrote her letters even more frequently. When he talked to Mimi, he would reminisce about the old days, catch up on the news and politics in the UK, or talk about how much he missed her and the beach house that he'd bought for her. Aunt Mimi, who always thought she would see John again, said about her conversations with John, quote, He used to tell me that the bungalow was his haven. He could always come here and have his own little room and be waited on hand and foot. One summer he came down for a week and sunbathed while I ran backwards and forwards for him, making cups of tea and cooking, just like the old days. The days always seemed sunny when John was here, unquote. Unfortunately, John would be stuck in the United States fighting for his right to stay, and he would never step foot in England or see his Aunt Mimi again. George Harrison's career exploded after the Beatles' breakup. We know this. After he released All Things Must Pass and the historic rock and roll benefit concert for Bangladesh, there was no ex-Beatle record that was anticipated quite like George Harrison's next album was. In 1971, after the concert, George started making plans to get back into the studio to really start the momentum going so he could make another record. In October of 71, George was at John Lennon's recording session for Happy Christmas, War is Over, when he met up with the legendary rock and roll piano player Nicky Hopkins and recruited Nicky to be part of his band for his upcoming album. Nicky was under the impression he was going to be at Harrison's Friar Park studio just after New Year's 72. He even said to rock journalists in late 1971, quote, George played some new songs for me for about two or three hours. They were really incredible. So he has plenty of material for an album, unquote. George's plans for an album quickly got moved to the back burner, though. He raised millions for the people of Bangladesh, but the trickiest part was making sure the money got to UNICEF, who would provide relief to the country. There was no shortage of red tape, you can imagine, when it came to sending money over. I mean, the money wasn't tax-exempt either because of Alan Klein's screw-up, so it wasn't being treated uh, as charity. It was being treated as George Harrison's personal income. And because of the sky-high taxes in England at the time, George had to deal with hours of talking to lawyers and accountants to ensure the government didn't take huge chunks of the relief money. George also had to oversee the production of the live album and the film for the concert, which brought a bunch of time-consuming difficulties as well and technical problems that made most of the camera footage unusable. The added headaches of the Beatles lawsuits, which were literally constant during this period, George simply just didn't have time to record another album. 
During this period, George also began to go through some pretty big personal changes. He was always spiritual, but he began taking his devotion to Hinduism to an extreme, sometimes chanting for hours and days at a time, meditating alone in the darkness for hours, or being surrounded by members of the Krishna community. In 1972, George left Patty alone and drove through France, Spain, and Portugal alone to meet up with his friends. He said, quote, I drove for about 23 hours and chanted all the way gets you feeling a bit invincible. The funny thing was that I didn't even know where I was going. I mean, I had brought a map and I knew basically which way I was aiming, but I couldn't speak French, Spanish, or Portuguese. But none of that seemed to matter. You know, once you get chanting, then things start to happen transcendentally, unquote. On top of his extreme religious devotion was a growing addiction to cocaine. Cocaine had been a pretty mainstream drug by this time, and George began to use it excessively, and he began drinking heavily along with it. This was obviously a pretty stark contrast to his spiritual life, which emphasized moderation and a clean, drug-free existence, but George would often rock back and forth between living a crazy, drug-fueled rock and roll life and an examined spiritual life. George's wife, Patty, obviously found it hard to keep up with George's extremes. She said, quote, George developed an interesting and extreme relationship with cocaine. He was either using it every day or not at all for months at a stretch. Then he would be spiritual and clean and would meditate for hours and hours with no chance of normality. During those periods, he would totally withdraw and I felt alone and isolated. Then, as if the pleasures of the flesh were too hard to resist, he would stop meditating, snort coke, have fun, flirting, and partying. Although it was more companionable, there was no normality in that either." Unquote. The stress, fame, and drugs was obviously pretty bad for George. His marriage was becoming more and more strained. He remained less and less faithful to Patty. His behavior was also pretty reckless when he was on a bender. In 1972, he drove his Mercedes into a roundabout going 90 miles an hour, and both he and Patty were admitted to the hospital. However, in the fall of 1972, amidst this new environment of drugs, paranoia, and unease in his personal and professional life, George finally decided it was time to make his next album. This album, titled Living in the Material World, was going to be quite different than All Things Must Pass. Instead of having masses of musicians walking in and out of the studio, you know, ten guitarists on a track, George assembled a tight little band. Nicky Hopkins on piano, Klaus Vorman on bass, Gary Wright on organ and keyboards, and Ringo Starr and Jim Keltner on drums. George, who was at the peak of his playing and singing abilities in 1973, didn't recruit any of his friends to play guitar on the record either. Clapton, who would have been Harrison's first choice, was having his own problems. He was a reclusive heroin addict hiding in the Welsh countryside, so not really available to play on the album. George plays all of the lead and rhythm guitar parts on Living in the Material World. He again recruited Phil Spector to produce the record, but by this time Spector was a total mess and played little to no role in George's follow-up record. George said of Spector's involvement, quote, Phil was never there. I literally used to have to go and break into the hotel to get him. I'd go to the roof of the inn on the park in London and climb in his window yelling, come on, we're supposed to be making a record. He'd say, oh, okay. And then he used to have 18 cherry brandies before he could get himself down to the studio. I was ending up with more work than if I had just been doing it on my own, unquote. The result of this refined lineup and the absence of Phil Spector's uh, wall of sound was quite extraordinary, though. Overall, the tone of the album is really like serene and even sad. And George is singing about, 
you know, his disappointment with society, the band really comes together to create a beautiful vibe. Uh, songs like Be Here Now, Who Can See It, The Light That Has Lighted the World, and That Is All. They're these really amazing mystical songs. They're laid back. They're they're quiet. The album also gets rocking with songs like The Lord Loves the One That Loves the Lord and Sue Me, Sue You Blues, which was a bluesy number complaining about the, all the Beatles lawsuits at the time. Lyrically, a lot of these songs are explicitly about religion, but more interestingly, a lot of the songs seem to be about George's worldview and his outlook and his attempts to reconcile his spiritual side with his indulgent side. In Try Some, Buy Some, George describes his life before discovering God and the balance between drugs and God saying, way back in time, someone said, try some, I tried some, now buy some, I bought some. When it seemed I would always be lonely, I opened my eyes and I saw you. And the importance of living in the now in Be Here Now, when he sings pretty hauntingly, it's not like it was before. It's like one of his best lines. George also is a little more political than he would have been uh, on his previous album with songs like The Day the World Gets Round. George doesn't just talk about God, though, you know, contrary to a lot of people's criticism of this album saying it's too preachy. A lot of these songs mention his struggle as a Beatle. It's kind of a record grappling with his identity. In Who Can See It and Living in the Material World, George mentions his bandmates by name. Although not very endearingly, he kind of dismisses the Beatles as purely figments of the material world, saying, met them all here in the material world, John and Paul here in the material world. Though we started out quite poor, we got Richie on a tour. We got caught up in the material world. Now, a lot of people who were around George at the time felt that he could be pretty hard to deal with especially when he was in one of these phases where he seemed to hate everything in the material world and really thought the only thing that was valuable to be thinking or talking about was spirituality and life and the cycle and 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 oneness with god i mean it could have been it could be really hard to to kind of carry a conversation uh, when he was in one of his phases i think my favorite part of this album though is george's lead guitar playing which is probably the best of his career he plays exclusively slide guitar for lead, which has officially become his medium by this point for music making. And he plays extended guitar solos in a bunch of songs. My favorite solo is the bluesy guitar part in The Lord Loves the One That Loves the Lord, and the lead parts in Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth, and Don't Let Me Wait Too Long. Beatle historian Michael Frenati actually describes the guitar playing on Give Me Love as, quote, a song that perfectly encapsulates Harrison's guitar technique and production. Economical in notes, it demonstrates virtuosity instead in its augmentation of the melody, rendered in the layering of two or more fluid slide parts painstakingly arranged and impeccably recorded." Unquote. This album, while being unique and slightly controversial due to its religious content at the time, was undoubtedly a commercial hit. The album was released in the spring of 1973, almost three years after All Things Must Pass, and it was without a doubt one of the most highly uh, appreciated releases of the year. Critics generally liked it. Some at Rolling Stone and the New Musical Express called it a pop classic and a masterpiece. Other critics were tired of George's preaching and criticized the album for being sad, boring, and overly religious, which really frustrated George. Regardless of the critical reviews, people bought this record in huge numbers, and it topped the album charts in America and climbed to number two in Britain. 
The lead single is also the opening track, Give Me Love, and that was a huge hit. It topped the charts in the United States, giving George his second number one single since the breakup. With living in the material world, not only did George take a risk when he departed from the recording techniques that brought him so much success with All Things Must Pass, but he actually recorded an album and a single that was arguably equally as well received, and in my opinion, uh, quality-wise, a little better than All Things Must Pass. And he maintained his status in 1973 as the most successful Beatle post-breakup. He didn't have a flop like John Lennon did, and he wasn't derided as a hack like Paul McCartney was. He was releasing good albums, and he was praised for the concert for Bangladesh. Now, the long wait between All Things Must Pass and Living in the Material World definitely was not helpful, and it kind of stunted his growth as a pop star early on in his career. Now, he was still, right now, the darling Beatle. George, like I said, hadn't had a bad album yet. He hadn't had a bad moment in the press. But he would soon find out that not everything that he did would turn to gold and that his success would not last forever. He would also find out how ruthless the rock press could be once you were no longer on the pedestal. Ringo Starr was actually doing all right for himself post-Beatles. He had carved out a busy, successful career as an actor, and he recorded two albums, Sentimental Journey and Boku of Blues, neither of which were pop or rock albums, but just kind of passion projects for Ringo. Ringo made a return to the world of pop with a top 10 single co-written by George Harrison, It Don't Come Easy. Ringo's first rock single wasn't a fluke. In fact, Ringo scored another huge hit in 1972, surpassing the success of It Don't Come Easy when he released Back Off Boogaloo. Ringo claims the song was inspired by his friend and T-Rex frontman Mark Bolin, who would say the word boogaloo a lot. But since its release, many people think the song's actually about Paul McCartney, and Ringo was joining in with his bandmates and writing a song directed at Paul. The lyrics... Wake up, meathead, don't pretend that you are dead, get yourself up off of the cart, and get yourself together now and give me something tasty, all the things you try to do you know it just sounds wasted, falls in line with many of the jabs at McCartney at the time. The reference to him being dead and the general disappointment with the McCartney album and Ram, Ringo was quoted criticizing Paul in 1971, saying, quote, He disappoints me on his albums. I don't think there's one tune on the last one, Ram. I just feel like he's wasted his time. He seems to be going strange. It's like he won't admit that he can write great tunes. I just feel like he's let me down, unquote. Ringo denies this interpretation of Back Off Boogaloo, but it did become a big hit, reaching number two in England and number nine in the United States. By 1973, after two hit singles, Ringo decided it was time to release his first rock and roll record post-Beatles this time one that was meant for the charts, so he enlisted the rock and roll producer Richard Perry, who he'd worked with previously, uh, to produce this new record. 
Ringo, who was always a bit more Hollywood than the rest of the Beatles, had begun living in Los Angeles and began recording uh, the album there. From the first session in the spring of 1973, the sessions were star-studded. Ringo invited George Harrison and the Canadian-American rock and roll band, The Band, to the sessions, where they recorded a song written by George called Sunshine, Life for Me. The song features Ringo on vocals and drums, George Harrison and Robbie Robertson on electric guitar, Rick Danko on the fiddle, Garth Hudson on the accordion, and Levon Helm on the mandolin. The celebrity appearances don't stop there. Actually, all four Beatles play on this record. John, George, and Ringo actually all play together on John Lennon's composition, I'm the Greatest, which opens up the album. The lyrics are grandiose and comical. Lennon said about the song, quote, I couldn't sing it, but it was perfect for Ringo. He could say, I'm the greatest, and people wouldn't get upset. Whereas if I said I'm the greatest, they'd get so upset, unquote. Like I said, I'm the Greatest is pretty close to a Beatles reunion with John Lennon contributing piano and harmonizing with Ringo and George Harrison adding his signature slide guitar. George heard that John and Ringo were playing together and he called Richard Perry and asked if he could join. When John heard that George wanted to play, he said, quote, Hell yes, tell him to get down here right away and help me finish this bridge, unquote. Richard Perry remembers the sessions for I'm the Greatest saying, quote, Just like that, no planning, the three ex-Beatles recorded one of John's songs. Everyone in the room was just gleaming. It's such a universal gleam with the Beatles, unquote. Ringo also invited Paul to play on his album. Ringo and Paul's relationship had been strained, but had greatly improved by 1973, with a lot of the tension over the breakup and the legal issues having been somewhat eased. Paul wrote a song in Ringo's voice called Six O'Clock, where he played piano, synth, and a few other instruments on the track. Ringo was a lover of songs. He loved classics, uh, so he included a few covers on this album, like You're 16 by Johnny Burnett and Have You Seen My Baby by Randy Newman. Sessions for the album were a bunch of fun, and Ringo, who was by this time quite the partier, made sure the sessions were filled with brandy, champagne, and the new Beatle crutch, cocaine. It had Guest musicians like George Harrison, John Lennon, Harry Nilsson, Mark Bolin, Paul McCartney, Nicky Hopkins, Bobby Keys, the band Billy Preston, and, and so many more. The best song on the album, arguably, is also the most commercially successful. Ringo Starr and George Harrison got together in the south of France in the summer of 1971. Uh, they met there. The Rolling Stones were recording Exile on Main Street in the south of France, and Mick Jagger invited Ringo and George to his wedding in Saint-Tropez. A pretty big group of rock stars ended up partying for a few days there, uh, and and more than a couple nights they were on Ringo's yacht, bouncing between Con, the Cannes Film, Film Festival and the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, at one point on the yacht, Ringo showed George some lyrics and chords that he had, and George helped Ringo write a melody, finish up the lyrics for what became Photograph. Ringo and George kept kicking around Photograph in the studio, but Ringo was never happy with the production. In 1973, they completed the song in Los Angeles with George on backing vocals and guitar. Uh, Photograph was released as a single just before Ringo's album was put out, and it topped the charts in America. A huge accomplishment. This was a number one single. This was Ringo's third top ten single since the Beatles broke up and his first number one. Even John Lennon had yet to score a number one in America as a solo artist. Ringo's album beautifully and simply called Ringo, was released in November of 1973, and it shot up to the number two position, missing the number one because of the success of Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh, 
Ringo released another chart-topping single from the album called You're 16, which gave him his second number one within three months. Starr then released another song, which he wrote, uh, and it was called Oh My My, which was a top ten as well. Since the breakup of the Beatles, Ringo had two number ones and five top tens, four of the songs he composed. Uh, when Lennon heard the news about Oh My My, the third single uh, within half a year that had been so hugely successful, he said in a telegram to Ringo, quote, Congratulations, how dare you, and please write me a hit song, unquote. Now, really, George Harrison deserves a lot of credit here, too. He was either officially or unofficially uh, the co-composer on songs like It Don't Come Easy, Back Off Boogaloo, and Photograph, and add this to My Sweet Lord and Gimme Love. By 1973, George Harrison was definitely the solo Beatle who was most familiar with the top of the charts. Ringo's success, though, was undeniable. And, but Ringo would soon find out that being at the top was hard to maintain. Not only would Ringo never surpass his success in the early 70s, but he would also begin to spiral into alcoholism and cocaine addiction. Paul McCartney's story as a solo artist is a lot different from Ringo's, George's, and even John's. He was writing and releasing a ton of music, but he had written so many hits and composed so many masterpieces as a Beatle, the expectations for Paul were just so high and he wasn't really delivering. It's so important to understand that from 1970 to 1973, fans and the music press were just so underwhelmed by Paul's music, and people generally like blamed Paul for all the problems in the Beatles and their breakup. They put, they put the end of the Beatles really at Paul's feet. In 1971, Paul decided to form a new band. He did this mainly because he missed playing in a band and he liked collaborating like the Beatles used to and working off of their musical chemistry. John, George, and Ringo were also playing with the same pool of musicians and they were often playing together. And they used people like Klaus Vormann, Jim Keltner, Nicky Hopkins, Gary Wright. They produced with Phil Spector. Paul wanted to be completely outside of his former bandmates musically. Didn't really help uh, the image of him, but... He recruited Denny Sewell to drum for him and Denny Lane, who formerly played with the Moody Blues and Ginger Baker's Air Force, to play guitar, kind of to be a multi-instrumentalist in his band. Paul was originally a guitar player, as we know, but he decided to stick with the bass in this new band. But he didn't stop himself from playing guitar or piano when he felt like he wanted to or if he had an idea for a part. Paul also had Linda, his wife, learn the keyboard so she could be in this band with him. Now, Linda was never very good at uh, playing or singing, but Paul didn't care. He just wanted her in the band. He wanted her sort of as a trustworthy, creative collaborator. This new band would be called Wings. In 1971, after releasing Ram, Paul got to work on a new album with his kind of impromptu new band, which would be called Wildlife. The album has some fun, some fun moments, but overall the music is not only forgettable, but at the time it was a critical embarrassment for Paul. Wildlife was completely shredded in the press with little or no positive reviews, and most critics agreed that it may be the worst music Paul had ever made. Not really a shining debut for Wings. Paul definitely could have used some good press, too. I mean, after being torn apart by his bandmates, uh, you know, musically in their songs and in the press... He was flailing in the charts album after album. 
Paul didn't let it bother him too much, at least publicly. He always kept a smile on his face and was generally pretty restrained in the press about his bandmates. But Paul's underwhelming performance was definitely a gray cloud for him. After Wildlife, Wings actually took off on the road. First, to get warmed up, they got in a van and drove around England, and they looked for places to play. This is another one of kind of Paul's philosophical whims. Literally, they didn't have any gigs booked, so they went to universities and asked the universities if they could perform. Once word got around that Paul McCartney was performing, people obviously flocked to see Paul. Now, Wings was rusty in experience, and they didn't have a ton of playable live material, so they played a few originals and then some rock classics by Elvis. They played Long Tall Sally. They played Buddy Holly songs. The only rule was no Beatles songs, which people obviously didn't love, but it was just so fun to see Paul McCartney in the flesh. This impromptu sort of gig searching turned into a full multi-month, 28-date European tour in 1972. This was the first post-Beatles tour, so there was definitely a lot of anticipation. While the tour was well-received and Paul was playing and singing really well, fans were disappointed that Paul didn't play one Beatles song the entire tour, and he stuck mainly to material from McCartney, Ram, and Wildlife, and filling a lot of the concert up with old standards and rock and roll covers, not unlike what he did at the universities. This did give Wings kind of an independent feeling. They were playing new material, and they were pretty successful. However, Paul was definitely the star of the show. It was his band. Wings had some good musical uh, musicians in it, but it wasn't a band in the sense that it was made up of musical equals. Paul didn't collaborate with Denny Lane the same way he collaborated with John Lennon. He was the musical leader of the band. Denny Lane is a phenomenal musician, but he's never going to outshine Paul McCartney. He's never going to have the attitude that is going to rival Paul uh, in the recording studio. So in a way, it was kind of perfect for Paul, who always did have kind of that authoritarian side to him. He was very much the leader of this band. He had almost complete artistic control over the music, the album art, the set list, etc. The only person he really listened to was Linda, who was playing simple chord changes on the piano during the live shows. Not Again, not much of a musician. The members of Wings weren't thrilled with this dynamic, but it was Paul McCartney. What could they expect? This was the biggest opportunity you could have as a rock star to play with a Beatle. Backstage with Wings was pretty different, too. It wasn't exactly the glamour and debauchery of a rock and roll tour of the early 70s. Paul and Linda brought their kids everywhere, and the entire band and the entire... McCartney family traveled around Europe in a big bus, so there wasn't much room for the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. While the other Beatles were partying harder and harder and drinking and using cocaine, Paul refrained virtually entirely from hard drugs, though he did love marijuana, and instead of traveling with it, he actually arranged to have uh, pot mailed to him at every stop on their tour. Now, this worked well at first, but in August of 1972, Wings were actually busted in Sweden for possession of pot. Another one in Paul's growing list of pot offenses. Now, these days, a pot bust is nothing. But back then, this was a real legal hassle. Not only was there risk of jail times, high fines, but when you were busted, that made it so hard to enter countries like United States, Canada, France, Germany, which were really important for a touring musician. Most of the charges were dropped, and Paul ended up with just a fine and another uh, thing on his record. 
This event actually inspired one of Paul's biggest hits, the chugging, bluesy, high, 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 which was a top 10 in both the UK and the US in early 1973, became a staple in his Wings live shows. It gave Paul a much-needed energy boost in the charts at a time when he was feeling pretty down and out. After Wings uh, ended their tour, which was called Wings Over Europe, in 1972, Paul and the new band went to the studio to make their second record. Paul was always prolific. He always had a bunch of songs ready to go and originally planned to release a huge double album, but he wanted this album to be a group effort, not simply a Paul McCartney record. Paul hired Glyn Johns to produce. Uh, Johns had worked with Paul before on the Get Back Project and had since made a name for himself as one of the best rock and roll producers in the business. He worked with The Who, The Rolling Stones, The Faces, Rod Stewart, a bunch of other big names in rock and roll. He was also kind of known for being, like Paul, very authoritative, and he had a vision and he wanted to be in charge in the studio. Glenn Johns remembers the first day of recording, quote, The first session, Paul came into the control room and he said, Now, I don't want you to think of me as Paul McCartney. I want you to think of me as the bass player in the band. Well, you can imagine how long that lasted. The second I started talking to him like a bass player in the band, it was, you know, who the bloody hell do you think you're talking to, unquote. Glenn Johns actually quit the project after only a few weeks. He felt that the material just wasn't that good and that Wings was usually just aimlessly jamming and indulging Paul's every whim. Paul actually did need someone to rein him in. He did better in the studio when he had somebody like John Lennon or George Martin to act as a musical authority on his songs. Paul had to cut down this album from a double album to a single album, using only the strongest songs that he had. This was because the record company was so unimpressed with so much of the material. The album would actually do really well in the charts, but it wasn't itself a very strong piece of music. Critics and fans were again disappointed with the album that became Red Rose Speedway. The man who wrote Yesterday, Sgt. Pepper, and Hey Jude seemed to be making a habit out of releasing albums full of forgetting, forgettable music and filler tracks, with a hit sprinkled in every once in a while. However, a song from this period began Paul's long-awaited hot streak. My Love, a song written about Linda, which was released as the single for Red Rose Speedway, was not only well-received by critics, but it was a huge hit. Paul McCartney's story, like I said, is a very interesting one, because after the Beatles' breakup, he was without a doubt the most hated Beatle. Even though he wanted to keep the band together, while George, John, and Ringo were at the peak of their careers, Paul was just being destroyed in the press. His music, his lawsuits, his wife were all just torn apart. Paul was really at a low point in the early 70s. One has to give it to Paul, though. Throughout all the lawsuits and the broken friendships, the fighting and the media criticism of his music, he just kept going. He kept on keeping on. The next few years would really turn the tables dramatically. Red Rose Speedway was not really a big hit, but My Love established Wings as a band capable of writing a hit. As John, George, and Ringo would fall from grace in the eyes of critics and drift from the mainstream, as they drifted into cocaine addiction and alcoholism and became more and more mediocre throughout the 70s, Paul McCartney was just getting started at proving to the world that he could be one of the most successful pop artists even outside the Beatles. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcasts and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Next week, we are talking about some of my favorite uh, rock and roll history. We're talking about George Harrison's Dark Horse Tour, John Lennon's Last Weekend. It's going to be so interesting. So I'll see you then. 